The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 40 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we had a great show last week with the CEO and co-founder of CryptoMove, Michael Burstein, where we continued our discussion on data security. So, you know, I like to try to couple some of these episodes together. You know, especially sometimes when we have similar topics because I find that it's a great way to get a ton of information on a particular domain or a particular subject because I know listeners out there, they like to splurge. I like to splurge sometimes. I like to listen to a few episodes at once. A lot of guys are in the car. They're traveling to work. They're on the commute. Maybe they bang out two, three episodes. Who knows? Who knows? And they're traveling sometimes, uh, you know, going different places. Um, and I know that's the time for them to catch up on some of the shows. So I like to kind of keep the subjects whenever I can sort of consistent in the episodes, and we were able to do that in the last couple uh, episodes. We did some things on uh, some, uh, had some discussions on data security, and I think it went really well, and it kind of uh, really uh, kind of meshed together. So what's amazing is, even with the holiday earlier in the month, and a ton of people on vacation recently, I mean, we really had some great, great numbers over the last few weeks. In fact, the best numbers we've ever had. And what's really exciting is, you know, this audience is global. So what's cool is that, of course, it certainly helps, right? Because not everyone who listens to the show is on holiday at once. So that's really cool, too, because that obviously helps out. I mean, not everybody around the world celebrates the 4th of July, for instance. So we had listeners all around that really weren't on vacation during that week and globally, and they were listening to the show. So I really appreciate all of you out there. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends. This, is, this has all been organic growth. I haven't spent a dollar of advertising on this show yet. No one even knew about the show before two days before we just started. We're just on our 40th episode this month. We're closing in on 70,000 listeners. It's great. So I really appreciate all of you. So if you missed last week's show, don't forget to check it out. Michael Burstein, CEO and co-founder of CryptoMove on last week's episode. That's episode number 39 of Task Force 7 Radio. So how do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, 
Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website, Task47Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Just check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We love when you do that. So tonight, we're going to have Vakis Badia on the show tonight, the CEO and co-founder of Just Protect on the show with us. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to break into the cybersecurity world by landing a great job. We're going to talk a little bit about how to take a look at the cybersecurity services industry as a whole. And then for the third segment, we're going to break down for you the world of cybersecurity assessments and regulatory compliance in a way that's surely going to keep you listening for more. So Vikas is a, he, he, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Just Protect. He's headquartered out of Manhattan, New York, the great city of New York, my hometown. That's home base. Uh, he's got a, just a little bit about Just Protect, though, before I even get into his background. I mean, Just Protect is a cybersecurity platform that allows businesses to continually assess themselves and their vendors. So it's a very cool sort of concept. It can be used by organizations of all sizes to assess risk and manage their security program to meet the cybersecurity requirements of their regulators, their investors, their customers, and anyone else who, who, who comes in to meet the, uh, your organization. So he's been crushing it in the cybersecurity business for over 19 years. And he's got a plethora, I kind of love using that word sometimes, a plethora of enterprise information technology experience with the majority of his experience dedicated to information security operations. He does operations. He did a lot of auditing, compliance, consulting engagements. Uh, he's got a very heavy background in this, so it's going to be a great guest to have on the show. And, and prior to the founding Just Protect, he founded Account Key Consulting. That's a cybersecurity consultancy that provided a retained chief information security office services to many technology startups in numerous small and medium-sized businesses, as well as consulting to a lot of Fortune 50 organizations. So prior to the Calki, he, he held senior consulting positions at the Federal Reserve Bank, Deloitte, and Capgemini, where he served clients, big clients, UK Ministry of Defense, Barclays Bank, American Express, Visa, you know, Citigroup, Honeywell, Shell Oil, many, many, and I guess the key here is many different sectors, which is good. You got a lot of diverse experience here. That's why we like to have these guests on to have a lot of diverse experience. And he also uh, consulted a lot of state and local governments too. And so he, both in the, he's got experience both in the public and the private sector. He's earned a bachelor's degree in economics from Kingston University in the UK. And based on his expertise, he was awarded permanent resident status in 2012 into the United States by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, which deemed him a person with exceptional ability in the national interest of the United States. Very cool, right? Specifically, obviously, in the area of information security. So we're glad to have him on board here in the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. And, of course, he's got a ton of certs, too. I'm not going to go over them. There's a long list of things here. Guy's got certifications everywhere. In fact, Vikas is right here with us right now. He is welcome to the show, brother. George, thank you very much for having me, man. Good afternoon. Hey, so the guy. am I pronouncing your name right? I'm going to ask it's you. Vicasso without the O. How do I say it? 
It's Vikas. It's like Vikaso without Vikas, the O. Vikas. Okay, Vikas. There okay. you go. You never corrected me before, and I was like, you know what? I wonder if I'm saying this. That's all right. I've, I've been called a lot worse. <laughs> I'll probably say it wrong again, but I'm terrible with names, but I apologize ahead of time. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show, George. Hey, man, I appreciate, you coming on. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'm anxious to get going and talking to you. And look, a lot of people have been asking me, I just got another person hit me up on, uh, you know, um, on, I think it was Twitter or one, one of the social media platforms. Uh, I can't even remember. They were saying, you know, how can you mentor me? Can you mentor me and get into you know, the cybersecurity space? Can you help me make this transition? And you have a ton of experience, you know, almost a couple of decades. Can you tell me how you got started in cybersecurity? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a freak of nature almost. I, I was actually in a traditional IT role. As you, as you mentioned in my bio, I, I studied economics. So I didn't even study computing or technology, but kind of fell into it um, in the late 90s because of the dot-com era. I was just really interested in kind of inter interconnected computers. You know, it was, a, it was a fascination. So I was doing traditional IT technical support a fairly large um, outsourcing organization. And I guess by freak of nature, we actually got hit um, on a Friday evening by the I Love You virus, which today is probably one of the largest viruses that um, kind of wiped out many, many companies globally. Um, we were at the tail end or the receiving end of that. And, and me personally, I, I was instructed to run into the data center and um, pull out the power cables from our servers. We manage about 40, 50 servers. Uh, in that particular data center, only because I'd been doing tape backups, right? I knew where every every server was, so the uh, the team leader was like, "You go and you go and run." So I mean, that's that's how I got my stripes, like really at the bottom. Um, I was doing a lot of incident response and disaster recovery. I mean, we we had everything from power lines going out to data centers getting flooded, um, and you know, I got moved into a security role where um, where actually one of my first big projects was um, actually the cleanup of a malicious insider. And that was, again, early 2000. So I got launched into cybersecurity um, in a very uncon unconventional manner. Yeah, um, but, it, but it was, uh, you know, it, w it was a learning experience uh, right from the get-go. So a lot of people are asking me, they're trying to make the transition. They do all kinds of things. You know, people coming from risk, I got, you know, people yep. coming from like investigations and they say, do I, how technical do I need to be? Because cybersecurity a lot of times is assumed to be a technical role. Do you agree with that? Um, certainly. I mean, it is, you know, if you think about the early days of, uh, we didn't even call it cybersecurity, as you probably remember, we called yep. it network security, computer security, information security, data security. Now it's turned into cybersecurity. Um, certainly, it, it, it's historically come from technology. So yes, you need to know technology. But I think the biggest thing that you need to understand is the business um, and risk. So if you can't understand what you're protecting, right, the, the business, if you will, and you, and you don't understand risk concepts, then really you won't, just knowing the technology isn't good enough. So it's, uh, it's definitely a combination of technology, business, and risk. I just had someone recently ask me, you know, they actually, they have like a, a computer science type bachelor's degree and they're looking to get a master's degree. And they said, you know, what cybersecurity, uh, what, what, what college has the best cybersecurity master's degree? And I think with a large number of people entering in the, the cybersecurity industry or trying to get in, trying to, you know, break that plane and get into the space, by obtaining these cybersecurity degrees, what do you see as the pros and cons of that type of approach? 
You know, um, we, we never had formal training. In the, again, in the early 2000s, there were maybe two colleges in the UK, Royal Holloway being one of them, Westminster being the other, that did a, a master's program in, in computer security, which is what they called it. We, we self-taught from SANS and, you know, uh, God bless uh, Sean Harris, who probably uh, sponsored many, many, many people, CISSP, right, um, or GSEC. There wasn't anything formal. You couldn't really go in and get a degree in, in computer security. Um, so we learned from the ground up. We learned by making mistakes. We learned um, without structure. Um, I guess the pros from the degree approach is, yes, you now have structure. There's, there's a lot more case, case studies and stories that the academics can bring to the table to, uh, to you know, document and demonstrate why a certain thing needs to get learned. The, that being said, the cons are that I've, I've come across people that have got cybersecurity degrees, but they're, they're academics, right? They don't have the fundamentals. And what do I mean by the fundamentals? You know, if, you, if, you don't know, if you've not built a PC before, if you've not had your own internal network, um, and you've not, you know, wired um, lands or anything like that. Knowing knowing about insider threats and knowing about, you know, uh, you know, uh, threat nations, etc. Then they're only going to get you so far. So yeah. certainly, there's a, there's there's a benefit and there's there's definitely a, a con as well. <laughs> Right, right. So having said that, like, what skills do you think people need to break into the industry to get a job in cybersecurity? So I, I talked to, you know, same, similar to you being um, requested for mentorship, I, I get calls from interns or you know, potential interns and people that want to come on board. And I ask them questions like, give me a, give me a non-routable um, internet address, All right? Tell me, do, you know, do you know basic networking? If I gave you Ethernet cable and I gave you an RJ45 and could you, could you put the two together? Do you know what the OSI layer is, right? Do, do you know the, the fundamentals about computing? Because I think if you don't have that fundamental network knowledge and that fundamental computing knowledge, knowing how one, one layer talks to another layer, um, you, you're going to miss, you're going to miss like critical things in front of you. So I had an old friend call me the other day. It's funny that you say that because I had an old friend call me the other day and she's like, you know, from, from college and she's like, hey, look, um, I just, hey, I was wondering if you had like 10 minutes to spare. I want you to, you know, you fill me in on cybersecurity. And I'm like, 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite funny, actually. <laughs> I was like, I was like you, know, you don't understand. You know, it take me like 10 years to do this. Um, right. Yeah. So look, I mean, a lot of people, especially the young folks, they're looking for a roadmap to get yeah. into the space, to move forward. And a lot of times they ask me, you know, well, how did you get to where you are in the industry and in, 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 in the corporate world and things like that? And I say, whatever you do, don't do what I did because that's not going to get you where you need to be. If you could repeat your career again, would you make any changes? And what do you recommend people to do when they say, hey, you know, what should I do as far as a roadmap on, you know, what's the roadmap to follow to get a, a successful service? Yeah, sure. So, I, you know, I try, I try and find out whether people are more technical or less technical. I think that's the starting place. So I, I think that one of the career changes that I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and, you know, I want to say that I wouldn't change anything, but I, I pretended to be a lot more technical than I was. 
So had I not done that, I would have learned or picked up a, um, a lot more business skills, soft skills, um, communication skills earlier in my career. I think for the new entrants coming in, you know, if, if you're interested in cybersecurity, know that cybersecurity has many domains and find the two or three domains that interest you the most and get really, really strong in those domains. But keep, you know, keep abreast of the rest of them because as we always say in security, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So understanding what the landscape lo looks like um, and knowing what you are good at is probably the first thing that I would change. I think the second thing that I would change is don't, um, you know, you can't know enough. I think to your comment just a minute ago, give me 10 minutes and tell me about cybersecurity. <laughs> well, in 10 minutes, cybersecurity landscape will change. So That's if you're right. not up to speed with if you're not up to speed with the latest threats, the latest vulnerabilities, or not even what they are, but where you would find out about them, you're already behind, right? Mm -hmm. If you go through a year's syllabus in a in, in a college degree, by the time that year's up, thirty percent of what you just learned that year is already useless. So keeping up to speed is um, is definitely one of those things that I would have done differently. No doubt. I feel like we could talk. I feel like we could do a whole episode just on this topic. I feel like we should too. I know we only, you know, mapped it out for this segment, but man, we, I feel like we could just talk about this. This is what people really want to learn about. People really want to hear about how to get into the cybersecurity, get the jobs that they want, understand what the different domains, because there are so many different domains in cybersecurity. When you say cybersecurity, that's why if you say that you're a cybersecurity expert, everybody on social media goes nuts. Because they're like, you're not, right. you know, because it encompasses so many different domains. How could you be an expert in all, everything? And, and, and it's just so difficult. And that's why people kind of steer clear from that sort of designation as well. But so look, I'm going to tell our audience a little bit about Task Force 7 Radio. And then we're going to, we're going to cut to a commercial break. And I'm going to be right back in, in a bit to, to keep up the, the cybersecurity discussion going. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Is that cool? That's absolutely perfect. All right, so hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7 radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Just Protect, Vikas Bhatia. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. 
Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Ink Mansoor acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman Soar live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Just Protect, Vikas Bhatia. So, Vikas, let's jump right into it and have some fun here. So, as a, as a consultant, I mentioned before in the first segment that you were a consultant. You got a lot of experience in this space. You worked a lot of different sectors. You got a lot of different clients. What do you think clients expect from you as a cybersecurity professional? You know, um, I've been consulting for close to 15, 16 years now. Um, probably probably worked with over 100, 100 clients of all different sizes, all different industries. I think the, the one <laughs> thing that they expect from you is it, that you know everything and that you're that unicorn that exists in the cybersecurity um, world. I think, as you mentioned in the last segment, there are so many different, uh, there are so many different domains and you can't be an expert in everything. So most clients do expect you to be um, that unicorn. Um, that being said, I think it then becomes incumbent on the, prof- the cybersecurity professional or the consultant to have um, at least a fundamental understanding of all the different domains and know who to call on, right? So I think, I think while the client may expect you to be the uniform, unicorn, you need to be able to know how to deal with and manage that um, and know who to call to get expert you know, advice or opinions if you're not familiar, you know, familiar with or strong in a particular domain. I think the second thing, um, if I was just, just to have two things, was um, 
that a number of the clients that I've come across in, again, all sizes, they expect you to tell them what to do or how to fix a problem without actually opening them, opening up the kimono. So it's like, tell me how to fix my problem, but I won't tell you any of the symptoms, um, which if you put it in just a medical terminology, right? I turn up to a doctor, I want the doctor to fix me, but I won't tell the doctor where I'm feeling pain, how long I've been having the pain for, does it happen when a certain thing happens? So, so you kind of have to, um, you kind of have to see through and work through that as well. Um, which again becomes very interesting, particularly if you're in the early stages of your career. So, do you think their expectations are unreasonable in a lot of respects? I mean, they expect you to be this genius in every single domain in cybersecurity. I mean, uh, you know, you know, I think it. I think that particularly if you're dealing with a business stakeholders, I think that is the case, and I think that still continues to be the case. Right. Um, you know, we mentioned right at the beginning of, of you know the the discussion that people still think that cybersecurity is a technology problem. Uh, I spoke at a, you know, uh, I spoke to a bunch of board members at a big conference a couple of years ago, and you know, 100% of the audience were board members, senior senior advisors to large organisations. And I asked the question, you know, do you think that you need to be in this session? And they said no, because they didn't see it as their problem. So if they don't see it as their problem, and then they're calling you in. They definitely need. They definitely think that you are going to be this, you know, magical unicorn that comes in and solves all the problems. So there is an unfair expectation, I think. You know, everybody's trying to get into the cybersecurity business. There's a lot of money here. I mean, the spend's going to go up to two hundred billion dollars over the next few years in cybersecurity. Budgets are skyrocketing uh, to try to protect firms. And so everyone's trying to get into a piece of the action. And you know, a lot of people are getting called out on social media. I see it all the time. You know, as phonies and you know, or, you know, people are just, you know, fakes and trying to get out there and just, you know, you got to watch what, you know, what these people say and who you're talking to because everyone pretends they're a genius. What do you think about all the types of different leader, whether it's lawyers or audit firms or IT firms out there that are now offering cybersecurity services? You know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a hater here, right? But <laughs> um, no. to, to your point, you know, that there is a, there is a huge need. There is a, uh, there's a big demand and look, the pie is big enough for all of us to eat, right? I'm not saying that people need to go and starve here. Um, and as much as I'm up for diversification, I also think that, you know, people should stick to the thing that they're good at. So if you are a law firm and you want to offer cybersecurity services, offer them from the slant of the legal perspective. Like if you're an IT firm, yeah, get some strong technical people that can help with configuration management or vulnerability management, asset management, those kind of domains. Um, if you're an audit firm, like get specialized in like your high trust or your SOC certification, but don't, don't be an audit firm offering pen testing services. That's not what you do. It's not why you get out of bed, right? It's not the reason that the firm started life. Like stick to the thing that you're good at. But certainly, certainly be involved in cyber, right? We need, we need those types of firms. We, on the inside or the outside, um, you know, in the event of a breach, you do need lawyers. You do need people that do remediation. Um, if you want to get certified 
or you want to work in particular industries or remain compliant. Audit firms, you've got to have that relationship and you've got to have audit firms that offer these kind of services. But it's when you start seeing um, those kind of firms offering services that are very, very different. Like I wouldn't go to a legal firm and ask them for threat intel data. Like, <laughs> it's kind right, of like, you right. know, let's, sense. let's, let's say sense. kosher here, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, I, you know, look, I definitely agree with you. I think, you know, you have, when it comes to lawyers, I mean, I think there's a lot of need for cybersecurity legal people out there, a lot. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of firms are actually assigning lawyers to the cybersecurity team to deal specifically with information security law and privacy uh, issues and things like that. Definitely a need. So I think you're right. I mean, if people stick to what they're specialized in their domain. I mean, I think they can they can do a lot. Like, for instance, I know I, I have there, I have an attorney on here often. Her name is Adriana Sanford. She's the fifth most listened to show out of the 40 that we've had so far. It's a nice number 40. And she's been on the air uh, on, the, I guess, the next the next closest episode to her has been on the air tw- at least twice as long as her. And then the other ones have been on three times as long as her. And she's still in the top five. You know, people really like to listen to what she has to say from a, a legal perspective when it comes to cybersecurity. So I think you got a really good point there. I think it just comes to me like, hey, look, if you're a lawyer and you're talking about cybersecurity legal issues, you got to know what you're talking about. It can't be, you know, it can't be fugazi, right? You got to know what you're talking right. about. And so, exactly. so there's a lot of services out there. What, what types of cybersecurity services do you think are in most need right now? I mean, they, they range, right? There's, there's the strategic, there's the advisory that... Um, would help organizations at the business level, right? So is the, is the board thinking about this the right way? Is, um, is our business executives thinking about cyber in the right way? So those kind of, you know, very um, specialized business-focused strategic and advisory consulting services, um, I think if, if an organization hasn't started there, they're, they're, not, they're not thinking about it the right way. Um, secondly, you've got the, you know, the operationalization of cybersecurity. So you've got the management layer. Um, if an organization has a CISO, chief information security officer or chief, you know, chief privacy officer, do they have the right resources? And if they don't, there are, there are services that they're going to call on. You know, they may be strategic and advisory, but it'll be a lot more day-to-day management rather than at the business level. And then, then there are technical um, services. You know, there's the technical testing, there's the implementation, um, there's the eyes on glass, as we like to call it, you know, the, the SOC analysts, the cybersecurity threat intel people. Um, and you've got, you know, if you think about just a security organization, um, where organizations don't have the internal capability, there's going to be a need and a gap. And those, those gaps can be filled by um, services organizations. But whether it's, uh, you know, a one-person retained CISO, a small firm, 5, 10, 15, 20 people, or the much larger, you know, up to the big four and um, the other well-known global firms. So I think there's a, there's a need for all of them at all layers. It's just about the, uh, the organization thinking about their gaps. So I think this is really important when you have a cybersecurity service and you're tar- you're targeting a certain market and you're talking about mid to you know smaller to mid-sized firms and even larger firms you know what what are these services focused on particularly when it comes to these types of firms like what what services are specifically focused on I guess I guess what what size companies are in most need of these types of services right now 
you know, we're, we're coming from a world, you know, I came from a world where the, when I was at the big four, um, the people that were buying the big four services were the fortune X, the publicly traded, um, government, government type organizations. But I think we're starting to see a change there. Um, you know, traditionally we think of cyber as just a big company problem. So unfortunately the, the services that have been made available have been focused on, uh, you know, much larger organizations. I, I think that that definitely needs to change, but that's, that's definitely the way that it has been done. I think that's probably because maybe just looking at it from a budget perspective, but I mean, are cybersecurity services relevant to smaller and mid-sized firms too? And can they even, can they afford the services that they really need? And when you're experienced, when you talk to them? Well, I think, you know, I, I had, a, I had an analogy when I ran my consulting firm and I said, you know, if, if I was a param, if I was a, a paramedic, right? If that's what our firm did, our average client died four times before they came to us, meaning they would have a problem. They would call their IT guy. Their IT guy wouldn't be able to fix it. They would call another guy, another guy, another guy. So, so if you think about what that means to the small and medium-sized firms, right? They, they don't have the luxury of the deep pockets. They don't have the luxury of being no. publicly traded. They, yeah, they um, definitely don't. No way. You know, I you know we can we all know about the target breach, right? We don't need to we don't need to dead, uh, you know, beat the dead donkey, but but target was target was really the catalyst for larger organisations to look and, and also to regulators to look at how um, smaller or mid-sized firms were managing their cybersecurity posture. Uh, you know, I I once had a actually it came up on my Facebook feed today. It was it was two years ago to the day I had a, a small business owner that got hit by ransomware, they had 60 people. And his IT, um, his IT services provider who'd been managing kind of backups and vulnerability management hadn't done a particularly good job. Um, and, and the business owner said to me, you know, what do I do? The ransomware wants 25 grand. And I said, do you have 25 grand to give them? He said, no. I said, well, how many people do you employ? He said, 60. I said, do you have a choice? You have a paid of 25 grand or you're going to have 60 people that turn up on Monday morning and you're, going to, you're not going to be able to get, get, get them to do anything. Like that's how much it matters to small firms. And being on the receiving end of those kind of phone calls, George, you know, sometimes we're a little cushioned. Us in the industry, right, we know it goes on. But, it's, you know, I liken it to being a, you know, being a doctor. Sometimes you've got to tell the patient the hard truth. Like, you've got you've got to be able to fix this so so is it relevant absolutely and i think we're seeing it more and more um with smaller companies that are now being assessed by their much larger um customers so knowing the reality of things how accessible are these services to these smaller and mid-sized firms i mean is it are, are, do they are they able to obtain these services and what do they do if they can't afford it you know, it, it's, a, it's a problem that I've been exposed to firsthand. Um, it certainly turned into a cost issue. Um, most, of the, most of the business that I got at Calkey was actually because the smaller firms couldn't afford to go to the large big four firms. Right? We kind of saw that. But I think the services industry also doesn't quite understand the, uh, the needs of those smaller firms. So, 
the smaller firms aren't going to engage in a statement of work by statement of work type project, right? They're, they're not thinking about capital expenditure. They're thinking about operationalizing it. So, so there's got to be a, a bit of give and take here. So I think historically, I would say that it wasn't very available, right? Those services weren't available to those firms. But we're starting to see a shift in the marketplace uh, in the types of services that are being um, being provided. And also, if a, if a smaller firm is already working with an IT firm, and the IT firm, as we mentioned earlier in our discussion, is offering some cyber services, then they should then they should leverage that, right? So, so I think that the services are becoming available. Um, if the if the smaller firms are open to working with and understanding what the problem what their problems are. So to set us up for the third segment of the show, before the break, I want to talk a little bit about this the, the risk assessments that these large companies do. Well, everybody does risk assessments, but when a large company does a risk assessment of some of these smaller firms, I mean, we're all familiar with these questionnaires. I don't know how effective these questionnaires are. And sometimes I question them, right? But I, I don't know that there's, there's, you know, there's all kinds of models that are coming out right now and, and everyone's talking about different things and I'm, this, is, this is what your company does in some respects, right? And so I want to I set us up for the third segment by talking about what, when a large company assesses the risk of a smaller firm, what exactly are they looking for? I mean, what's the, when the rubber hits the road, what exactly are they looking to assess? You know, it's a, it's a combination of um, business and technical controls. They don't, they don't just want to know that you're up to date with your vulnerability management and your asset management. They, they also want to know that in the event that, um, you know, in the event that they have a breach, right? There is, you know, we used to say back in the day that the most secure computer is the one that's turned off and buried in concrete, right? Not connected into a network. So you're always expecting something to happen. I think, I think what the larger organizations are looking for, particularly if they're working with smaller organizations that are critical to certain innovative services or uh, products that they're offering, you know, how, um, how capable are they in being able to respond if the sh- proverbial hits the fan. I almost said it there, George, <laughs> keeping it clean for you. Um, you know, we, we all know that the smaller organizations don't have the capabilities of the Fortune, Fortune X firms, right? That's, that's a given. But I think it's, you know, what type of data do the smaller companies access? Do they have access to data on-site or remote? Are they working in code? Are they providing, you know, widgets to a much larger machine that is very critical? There's a range of these things, but what it comes down to, the larger companies are basically saying, A, what do you do today? B, do you have buy-in at different levels of the organization? And C, if the proverbial was to hit the fan, would we, you know, would we be... uh, would we be able to like put our foot forward or would we be on the back foot in the event of a, of a particular breach? So this is a good setup for the third segment. I want to come back in the third segment and talk about why vendor risk is important. I want to talk about the current vendor risk assessment process that's going on in the industry. You know, some of these smaller firms, how they're reacting to these assessments, all types of stuff like this. It's, I want to sort of get into a deep dive. It's a great teaser, but right now we've got to take another break hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Vikas Bhatia after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. 
the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Just Protect, Vikas Bhatia. So Vikas, before the break, we were talking about vendor risk and some of the assessments. Can you talk me through why vendor risk is so important and share the current vendor risk assessment process as you know it in the industry today? Yep, certainly. So, you know, if you think about the olden days, right, I like to reminisce from time to time. We, uh, we used to live in, eco, you know, our ecosystem was very perimeterized. We we owned all of our technology, it all sat in our data center. And even if you're a smaller organization, you had, you know, your server underneath your desk and, and that's where you kind of did your, did your stuff. Well, we don't live in that world anymore. So, you know, Target, as we mentioned in, uh, in the earlier segment, was, was one of the catalysts for, um, you know, third party risk became, becoming a big problem uh, for large organizations and for regulators. And, and now if we think about, uh, you know, the, the number of startups that exist, you know, the innovation, 
the larger organizations aren't aren't able to innovate internally as quickly as the fintechs, the medtechs, the regtechs. And those guys don't have their own infrastructure, right? They're, they're relying on someone that, someone else's infrastructure, someone else's tech, freelancers, offshore devs. So, so now you've got this ecosystem that is not perimeterized and the, the level of risk that is brought onto the larger organization is not just third party. It could be fourth, fifth, sixth party. So when you're, when you're a large publicly traded organization, um, and you've got, you know, many, many, many shareholders, you're just about to launch a critical product Well, you don't want the fourth party. Um, you don't want a fourth party risk to trip you up. So that's, that's why it's important. And really the regulators have now started to pick up on it. So in it's, you know, it's important because people care about it and really it's, it's got a business impact. Um, your second part of the question, the current vendor risk assessment process. Well, uh, currently, um, most of the risk assessment processes for vendors are tied into kind of a procurement process. And from what I've seen, um, in most cases, it's really a check the box exercise, right? So they're finding out how, how, um, how long you've been in operation, do you, you know, who you owned by, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's some arbitrary security questionnaire that, that goes out. Um, and for the more mature organization, you know, a risk determinations made by InfoSec um, about, you know, whether the, whether the vendor is accessing data, what is it on site, you know, certain risk criteria and factors. But really, if, if the vendor is critical enough to the business, I've, uh, you know, been exposed to situations where the business just says, hey, you know, we just need to accept this risk and, um, and sign off on it. And how are they doing these assessments? Well, a lot of it's kind of spreadsheet and survey driven, right? So you've got procurement sending out this spreadsheet. The spreadsheet goes to someone. Um, it's survey driven, so it could be on a web portal. But fundamentally, you've got security people that are providing, um, you know, these security questions because they've come from regulation as if they're talking to security people on the other side. So it's security questions, security questions written for security professionals, but really in the most, in the majority of cases for the smaller organization, it's not a security person that's responding. That's so, right. no, I, I see this. I see this in the industry a lot. I mean, these smaller firms get these huge questionnaires, like you said, these spreadsheets with all kinds of information on it. And they're just like, hey, look, man, I can't. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, if there's certain uh, limits or if, if there's uh, a certain things and thresholds that I have to meet to do business with you, I, some of these things I just can't do. And they go back to the bigger firm. The bigger firm does say, hey, look, I'm going to sign off on this risk. Because if I don't, we're not even going to have a conversation about doing business with this company, right? And so, how, did, how do you think these smaller firms are reacting to these assessments? I mean, in general, I mean, when they see these assessments coming at them, I mean, what are they, you know, they're probably like, oh my God, right? <laughs> uh, so, I, I was speaking to a CTO of a, um, of, a, of a fintech company that's doing fairly well right now. Let's just leave it at that for confidentiality purposes. Um, and the CTO said to me, I'm getting four vendor risk assessments a week because we're doing really well and our salespeople are really good. So the, the smaller firms are reacting to these assessments because it's imperative to closing the deal, right? So they're treating it like a sales vehicle, essentially. Um, but if the business isn't bought in and doesn't have a, a business um, 
an organization-wide security program, you know, the the poor IT guy, the, the CTO is being lumbered with these spreadsheets. Um, best case scenario, they've got some budgets and they'll they'll hire a freelancer with skills like mine or, you know, someone that does retain CISO um, and they'll help them navigate through uh, each question. But otherwise, you know, you've got the CTOs, the IT um, managers, directors of the world that are treating this like a technical exercise. And, and they're trying their damnedest to, to hit every one of these requirements, but don't actually understand why they're being asked the question. They just know that if they don't complete um, this assessment, it's going to be a blocker to the deal, which then gets the CEO or the business breathing down their neck. So. I mean, long story short, they're running around with their, with their, you know, like blue. <laughs> they're running around with like headless chickens, um, yeah, trying to like, scramble on to try to make place. people happy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's terrible, right? It, it's it is really tough. No, it is really tough. I mean, so if you, you know, you just named some of the challenges there, obviously, if you don't answer the questions, you don't, but if you had to say, what are the specific challenges to the current approach, the way we're doing the assessments today? Would you add anything else or, or is, you know, yeah, I mean the, well, the biggest one I mentioned just a minute ago, right? The questions are security questions written for security professionals. I think as an, in an industry as a whole, we need to understand that the respondents to this to these questions are not security people. Right. So right. let's frame it differently. I think the other, the other part of this is that the respondents often feel that they need to justify Right. So they need to, for example, uh, just working with a client recently, they said, you know, so we're being asked about physical security and, um, you know, turns, you know, turnstiles and who's got access to the data centers, et cetera. So we're, we've, we're going to install a port, you know, nest in our co-working office. And I said, well, hold on a minute. All of your customer data is residing in AWS, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm like, you have nothing in the office. And he's like, yeah. So I said, well, why don't you just demonstrate the fact that you inherit all of those physical controls from AWS then? Right. Like, hold on a minute. Like, why are you, why are you even going down there? Because by adding another asset, right, you're adding more liability to yourself and, and you're not operationalizing that physical access control mechanism, right? You're, right. you're going to have to meet certain standards and frameworks. You're going to have to demonstrate that you're meeting certain standards and frameworks for that new asset that you have, right? That new infrastructure. What, what any data that you store there? So what other advice would you give to these smaller firms? Some of these even startups that are just, I, I mean, I, you know, these startups are getting crushed with these types of things, right? I mean, what, what kind of advice would you give them when concerning these, these assessments? I mean, I, I always start with the absolute fundamentals of data classification. And I put it in some very non-technical terms. I say, there's going to be crap that gets you into trouble. And that's the regulated data. That's the PII, the EPHI, the financial records. Then there's going to be, then there's going to be data that you've got that will embarrass you or is sensitive to the organization, but wouldn't get you in trouble with regulators. Then there's, then there's like data that you've got that's just damn right annoying. If, some, you know, if someone found out, you know, who all of your contractors are. It wouldn't be the end of the world, but hey, it could cause you a problem. So once you start thinking about the data in terms of these classifications, and you have these kind of virtual buckets, then you put assets in the bucket. So start, start with the absolute basics. So I always say, like, start with the data classification, work out what you've got, 
work out where it is, and then talk to someone, some, someone that knows what they're doing about the biggest risk with your bucket. And until you've done that, don't do anything else, right? Um, I think the other piece of advice that I would give is um, when you're getting these assessments, I think the, the immediate response is deer in headlights, right? I, need, I must respond to every question. I must do everything that this assessment's asking me to do if I don't currently do it. I, I'd really like to know. I mean, like you've got you've got a bucket load of listeners on on this uh, on this like uh, on your sort of task force seven. Like, how many of the people people that are listening to this right now have actually asked Amazon to look at their data centers and have been able to walk into an Amazon data center? And I'd probably put that down to like less than 0.1% of the Yeah, not many. <laughs> right? Not so, many. So I think taking that approach, right, if you take that approach and you say, hey, listen, you're not going to be able to do everything, but work out what the work out what the assessor is trying to obtain from you, right? Make friends. Us security people, we like talking to security people. So if you know, like if you don't, respond with this kind of deer in headlights approach, hey, pick up the phone. Ask to speak to their security people and say, hey, look, look, we're a smaller firm. You know, we may not do everything, but can you just tell us, give us, give us a helping hand here. And I think, I think taking that approach, it, it is going to need to, uh, it is going to need uh, the smaller organization to, you know, gain a bit of inner strength. But, but I think once you're able to do that, you're able to find out what is really important so you can focus on the things that are higher risk. And I, and I pretty much guarantee that taking that approach would actually close you more deals than just blanketly responding uh, in the way that you think the assessing organization wants you to respond. So considering some of the challenges in these smaller firms that you just described, and given in these smaller companies, and especially uh, startups and you know, uh, smaller firms are even getting you know, bootstrapped by their CEOs now, Cybersecurity is usually managed by the CTO of those companies, or in some 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 cases, maybe a CIO. How do you think they could get the business involved earlier in what they do? And, and I guess that's sort of a logical question. Somebody would probably just say, "Well, just pick up the phone and go ask them, or go walk over to the desk." It's really not that easy, <laughs> right? It's not that easy, right? I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. How do they do this? Yeah, so I think the easiest way. Um, the easiest way to do it is to get one of these assessments that you've been handed. And if you don't have one, I'm sure you could, you could Google one and find, you know, you could find a third party risk assessment. Um, and, and those assessments are still broken down into uh, various domains. And I think uh, the CTO or the CIO should be able to talk to their business, lay out just the domain. So if you take ISO or NIST or you know, CSF or any of these other regulations, they're all broken down into domains and you say, hey, listen, sure, I can do your vulnerability management. Sure, I can do instant response. But when we're talking about HR security, when we're talking about compliance, when we're talking about enterprise risk, is that really falling to me? Like, because I don't see that in my job spec. Right. So I think, I think by having that candid conversation, um, you know, you, you're able to bring in the business uh, a lot earlier. I had a, a very similar uh, conversation with a COO once um, who was trying to get me to come on board and, and he showed me the job spec and I said, I said, you know, this is all well and good, but if I break down the ISO domains, you're, you're actually missing out like five, five of those ISO domains. 
and that's 27,001, uh, 27,002. Um, and I said, look, I don't care whether I do it or someone else does it. You just need to tell me that someone's got this. So I think, I think by laying it out in a very simplistic way, like these are the ISO domains, and I, I pick on ISO because that's kind of how I was raised. Um, these are the ISO domains. These are the ones that align to my job spec. Can you tell me if I'm doing the rest or is someone else doing the rest? And I think certain decisions around, you know, HR security or, or compliance or, you know, privacy um, aren't going to fall then to the CTO or CIO. And that's how you get them involved earlier. So I think things get sophisticated and more complex when you see companies with different cybersecurity frameworks, different cybersecurity regulators, they start working together, right? When they want to do business together. And if you have, like, say, a smaller company that does, like, uh, healthcare, like, they're a, they're a healthcare provider and they're regulated by, uh, they want to be HIPAA compliant, for, uh, so to speak, right? And then you have a finance, they want to do business with a financial services company who have a whole host of other frameworks and, and regulators and, and, and standards that they have to abide by. Things get really sort of complex in my mind in that, in that situation. Well, what challenges do you see when these companies want to do business together and they want to start working together? So um, more often than not, someone will get their, someone will get someone will get a bee in their bonnet about we need to be X compliant. So HIPAA was the example that you gave, right? We need to be HIPAA compliant. So they run around, they get all of their policies and procedures and technical controls and whatever aligned to HIPAA. Um, and then, you know, in your example, you've got the financial services part 500 company coming along. What they haven't actually done is they haven't used an industry agnostic set of standards and done any sort of mapping. So I think that the, the, uh, the challenge is that if they haven't used an agnostic, an agnostic mapping, right? Like uh, ISO 27002 or NIST 853 or CSF, um, they're, they're going to, they're going to duplicate their effort. So someone will say, oh, now we need to think about part 500. Let's write a bunch of policies that align to part 500. Well, hold on a minute. What happened to your HIPAA policies? Right? Right, right. <laughs> because they haven't worked out how to map it back. So, so I think um, when you, when you, when you react to becoming a cybersecurity aware or start increasing your posture in cybersecurity and that reacts if you've been, you know, been assessed by a larger organization or if, uh, you know, the CEO just heard about some story and all of a sudden it was the most important thing. If you don't take a broader look at, um, at what you're trying to do and align it to a business and align it to an agnostic set of standards, you're going to be consistently facing your tail. And I've seen that time and time again. Wow. So, you know, I think when you look at these assessments too, I mean, a lot of times the people are assessing not only the tools and their processes, but also the people as well. And in security, we always say that, you know, people are the weakest link. It seems like our adversaries are always going after the people. Uh, and I guess the, the people problems we have with, with social engineering and, and maybe not following the best cybersecurity practices or rules that we should. Do you agree with this? And aside from like implanting chips in all our employees, can you share, share some strategies or approaches that you think that, that can identify people risk in your organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the fundamentals, uh, uh, yes, I do agree. People, 
people are the weakest link. You know, one of the first lessons I learned in uh, when I came into tech was that computers are stupid. They are for the moment anyway, right? They they will only do the thing that you program them to program them to do. So so we we've got to park the whole computer intelligence thing aside. Um, so in terms of in terms of the people, yeah, I mean we. We know that you know background checks are a good idea. Uh, we also, um, for executives, perform perform tests like you know Myers Briggs and work out what people's personalities are. When was the last time a security professional had a personality test? Is that security professional an oversharer? Are they an undersharer? Are they uh, are they an introvert? Are they an extrovert? You know those those kind of assessments are typically being done by you know defense um, defense or government focused organizations. Um, but how about we start employing some of those strategies or approaches um, with, you know, the the administrator of the CEO, right? Who could be the weakest link because they've got shared credentials, et cetera, et cetera. So if we, you know, again, start to think about people may have a really bad day. Um, we can't detect that they've had a really bad day unless they tell us that they've had a really bad day. But, but by finding out how someone would respond in a certain situation will help to um, reduce those risk factors. You know, we always have a sixth sense about people. Um, uh, there are, you know, there are certainly approaches, be it online, you know, very quick and easy tests that you can do as part of your hiring process or part of your reevaluation process that will help you identify those people risks. I think fundamentally that's where you've got to start. But, uh, you, and again, you've got to have a starting point. Yeah, so look, we, we've spoken a lot about the smaller businesses uh, during our discussion today. The larger organizations, they do already have the budgets. They have the teams. They have the existing processes. They have a lot of capability, man. So these larger organizations, are it's like night and day compared to the smaller or midsize uh, companies. But why is everything that we've discussed today still relevant to them, which I think it is, and, but I just want to get your take on this, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm exposed to a lot of different startups here in New York City and, you know, have entered a lot of different co-working spaces. And some of these co-working spaces, there are up to, you know, between 500 and 1,000 different organizations. Now, if you think about half of them are B2B type organizations. That's, that's on average 500 organizations in a building that are now trying to sell to B2B organizations. And so the ecosystem um, is, is structured in a way that the smaller organizations are trying to work with the larger organizations. So the larger organizations need to be aware that the smaller organizations that they're exposing to these vendor risk assessments um, or their traditional processes, they, they won't work because the, you know, you, you, may work, you may be working with an innovative uh, fintech firm that just closed their first round of funding and they could be high risk. Um, they secure a whole bunch of money in a couple of months and what do they do with that money? They hire a team of offshore developers um, to work on the three or four features that they promised you as part of their next product roadmap. So the dynamic, the dynamic nature of the uh, of the smaller organisations isn't isn't fully visible to the current risk management processes of the larger firms. So the larger firms really need to take a look at, you know, who are they working with, and then what's the what's the rate of change within those smaller organisations? 
And I don't. I just don't think that the current processes are are, are equipped to uh, to be able to detect that. And so we're going to see a lot more of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to see a lot more of this, and I think. Um, this is going to be a, 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 a problem that's going to, I guess, continue to plague the industry for some time. But Just Protect, Just Protect uh, has some solutions in this space. Check them out, folks. Just Protect. So, Vikas, it's great having you on the show today. I really appreciate you uh, sticking around with me, man. We got to do we got to do happy hour in the in the next couple of weeks down on Stone Street or something. I got we got to catch up some more. I look forward to it. I feel Absolutely like look I feel like you know we're just talking right now, and we, we, if we would just tape the show at the bar, we probably do. A, we could hang out a couple more episodes <laughs> really easily. But uh, I, I think that I think that'll be a, a really good idea. Maybe maybe we'll set up a bar in a in a shared working space after hours one day, and uh, <laughs> and really get to know what people think. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell, I've seen I've seen it done in New York before, especially in the morning. They set up radio shows in the morning. Uh, you know, right at some of the pubs and they, you know, and they, and they go, they hit it, you know, but uh, anyway, look, this was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much for coming on. Hope to have you back soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, George. Hey, we've run out of time, folks. Before we go, I'll remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.